Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST-47, Tom Tricoli's Dog, which is a bizarre and very cool record. And we even have a special guest on the show, Brent. Yep, Tom Tricoli himself, the Dog King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool that Tom took the time to uh, speak with us. Really appreciate that. Yeah, he gave me and tons he... of great info, too, off the air. So we got lots to talk about tonight. Awesome. Cool. Any spiels from you, Brant, before we get going? Yeah, I have two. You remember a couple weeks ago when I said I was rocking with Dokken and you were kind of laughing a little bit? I remember you mentioning that, but I always respect your musical taste, though oh. I don't agree with it always. <laughs> All right. Uh, SST connection. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so some I'm, I'm on a, like a St. Vitus Facebook page group. And someone posted this video from a, like a Doom documentary. It might even be the one that you mentioned that you had watched. It's on YouTube, yeah. Yeah. This is just a snippet of Don Dokken uh, talking about the album he produced for St. Vitus. So I looked it up, and it's an album they did in 1993 called COD. And he produced it. Don Dokken. He's kind of making fun of them a little bit in the video, like how they only... He, he kept going, you know, guys, like, t Sabbath has some up-tempo songs, you know, like Hole in the Sky and stuff like that. Like, can we try something like that? And they just, <laughs> he, he says, like, you know, they smoked so much pot, is what he says. And every time they tried, it just came out the same tempo. It's a pretty funny little little clip. And, uh, yeah, Don Dawkins produced this album, COD. And it has a different singer, too, Christian Linderson. So it's not, it's not, it didn't come out on SSD, but it's not Wino and it's not Scott Riegers. So that was interesting. I kind of want to hear it now. Can you guess, Ryan, what COD stands for? It, it could be cash on demand, but nope. it probably is, it probably is not. Children of? Doom? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Children of Doom. Yep. Okay. Well, yeah, no, I definitely would not have guessed that. Okay. Uh, here's my second spiel. This kind of, I guess maybe this isn't a spiel. Maybe I should have saved this for history lesson part one, but I found something really cool today that was kind of interesting. Do you know that movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Oh, yeah. Do you know the character Jeff Spicoli? Yeah, of course. Yeah, they based that character on Tom Tricoli. What? Yeah. Where did you find that? Nowhere. I made it up. <laughs> you could see it though hey maybe yeah just maybe do you want to get to some actual spiels yeah you have some i have i have two okay go and they're both homework that you gave me oh okay yeah so yeah. first relates to that band magnolia Thunderpussy. right and you're like Oh, did it come with an insert? And I was like, yeah, it comes with a big one. And you're like, oh, tell me all about it. And I hadn't read it yet. So today I read it while I was listening to the CD. And there's lots of cool stuff in it. Lots of tidbits about the L.A. scene. But the one thing I thought I would mention, which honestly kind of blew my mind, and I'm not even sure that it's real. But if it is real, it blew my mind. And that is, do you know the lead singer's name in Magnolia Thunderpusty? Uh, yeah, it's, what is it? I read it in the press release. It's something I've heard of before. It, oh, Dale Nixon, right? It's, it's Dale Nixon. Yeah. So did we mention that last time when we were talking about them? No. Is he on the album though? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm reading through the liner notes and I'm going, wait a second, Dale Nixon. And we all know who that is. That's that's Greg Ginn's name as the bass player on the My War album. And zillions of other guys or musicians have copped that name to kind of perform under a pseudonym on records since as a bit of a punk rock inside joke. Right. But if these liner notes are true, this is the real Dale Nixon, and I never realized that. Well, there's probably lots of Dale Nixons. I didn't mention no, it. This is it. This is him. This yeah. is the only one. Okay. The original. This is the first one. Well, it talks all about how the band, uh, like Greg really liked the band and Chuck and Joe 
were liking the band and all sorts of stuff. Like they played around. They played with Flag. They played with all these L.A. bands, you know, Axe, TSOL. But they were in high school, right? Yeah, but they were still playing these shows and going to these shows too, right? Yeah. So I'd be curious if someone else out there can verify that. Maybe it's Greg Ginn. (laughs) Actually, I've heard him saying on his solo albums, it's not Greg Ginn. No. No. Well, yeah, and the the pictures of Dale Nixon in this CD do not look like him either. Anyways, I did my homework. The other piece of homework you gave me related to last week's podcast, Saccharine Trust World, World Broken, and I feel like a bit of a doofus for not realizing this, but remember I mentioned that the liner notes are just lots and lots of words, and then all these, uh, it looks like they're broken up kind of by the songs, but then Mike Watt has kind of got his own words to go with each of the songs. His spiel? And yeah, well, it's a bit of a, a bit of a spiel for each of the songs, but it's obvious now that I sit down and I listen to the record a few more times after the podcast uh, because I still really like it. It's obvious that all the words in there, even the ones that aren't attributed to Jack Brewer, the ones where there are the co-writes like Fred Torres, Ed Smith, all those ones, they are. it's basically all of Jack's poetry that he's spieling over the record. It's pretty darn close. There's a few words off here and there, but... But that's uh, that's the follow-up homework that you gave me from last time as well. Okay, glad we cleared that up. Confirmed. I still have no idea what Watt's words are, though, on the liner notes. All right. That's it for me. Let's get into this album. History Lesson, Part 1. I'll lay it down for you here. We're not going to have to talk about too much in History Lesson, Part 1, because Tom kind of takes care of most of that in the interview. So it was, they were in New Jersey, outside of a bar, when Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski approached Tom Tricoli about forming a band for the opening slot on the Fall 84 Flag Tour. Now, he knew them, like, I'm pretty sure he was on the tour, and I think the story goes that, because he had played in the Nig Heist, that the Nig Heist couldn't do the 84 tour, and they need someone else, needed someone else to take that first slot that the Nig Heist, Heist normally filled. So they asked asked Tom to form a band. Uh, he asked Davo to drum. They were super tight and had played in the Neg Heist together. And uh, he asked Ginn to play bass. You'll hear him talk about that in the interview. Tom told me that uh, he learned, or that Greg Ginn had, had learned from the October Faction experience uh, that he played better with Flag if he warmed up first. So that was kind of kind of the theory. Again, Tom's going to mention this in the interview, but originally Bill Stevenson uh, was brought in to play rhythm guitar. And I'm not sure uh, if a lot of people realize that Bill is a very accomplished guitar player as well. Like, he writes a lot of the Descendants songs, uh, guitar, the guitar riffs and everything. So, he was originally uh, in October, or sorry, in Tom Tricoli's Dog, and I'll let uh, Tom explain in the interview what happened there. Uh, at the start, Tom would come out with a 12-string acoustic, and Dave Davo would come out with bongos, and they'd play three or four un, unrehearsed covers, then bring out Greg and Bill and switch to the full kit and, and to the electric guitar. Uh, Bill was asked to leave. It wasn't working out. Eventually, after about three shows, they had dropped, dropped the acoustic part of the set, and uh, sometimes they wouldn't play any songs. They'd just jam for half an hour. In April of 85, they went into Mystic Studios at a budget of $1,000. Uh, they recorded this album over four days, two days for basic tracks, another day for vocals and the acoustic stuff, and a final day for mixing. Should we get to the interview? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Tom, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm wondering if you could hey. t- take us back to uh, the start and the forming of Tom Tricoli's Dog. Well, you know, uh, I was already working with Black Flag in the capacity of uh, playing bass in the Nig Heist, and I also wound up uh, doing some vocals with October Faction. And uh, on that October Faction tour, uh, October Faction was only supposed to be lasting for a little while, and Flag was looking for a new band. Ken was looking for a new band to uh, put in the opening slot. And although I was not known much as a guitar player in that crowd, I am a guitar player, and I've got a history of busking and playing on street corners. 
we pulled into a town in New Jersey, and they didn't open in time for sound check. And we had many hours sitting out on the sidewalk, and I played a lot of guitar out on the sidewalk, running through just dozens and dozens of tunes. And Dukowski heard me, was really impressed, brought Ginn over, and uh, Ginn asked me if I'd be interested in putting together a band to open for the uh, Fall 84 tour. And of course, being smart, I knew to ask Ginn right away to be in the band. I asked Davo because I just really enjoyed hanging out with Davo, and what is forgotten here is that for a very brief moment, though it didn't work out, Bill Stevenson was the original rhythm guitar player in the band. So uh, we all got together, we did a couple of tunes, and then I went out and uh, started opening for them on the road. Bill was briefly in the band. Yes, very, very briefly, and the deal was is that didn't really work out because, quite frankly, Gin and Davo and I were were great fans of what you might call herbal jazz cigarettes. That's okay. what Paul McCartney occasionally calls them, okay? I think and I know Bill what you're talking about. <laughs> I bet you do. Yeah. Uh, Bill, was, Bill, Bill was very not into that. The idea was that I was putting together like this pseudo-fake little mini Grateful Dead thing, which meant that Davo and Ginn and I would like space out, but, but Bill just was not there. So I finally went to Ginn and I asked him for advice. I said, you know, I mean, you know, I love Bill, but I don't know what to do. And Jim was ruthless. He told me, it's my band. I got to go and fire Bill. So I went to Bill and I actually did fire Bill, which was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. And then we went on and became the three piece, which is what was pretty well known. But then later, for a brief, very brief moment, Anthony Martinez was our second drummer. And we actually had two drummers on stage. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's I, there's very few recordings of that. I, I have a couple, but, and there may be more out there circulating, but uh, that was pretty interesting, too. Oh, I bet. Um, was yeah. he, like, drumming in time with uh, Davo, or was he, like, just complimenting him somehow? Well, you know, the thing is that Davo is never really what you would call a schooled or a metric drummer in any way, shape, or form. So you would almost say that Dave will actually wound up playing with Anthony. And Anthony, for the first time, actually provided Dog with a true steady backbeat. And that was really, really impressive because all of a sudden I had to start playing like pop music instead of like space music. Kind of tighten things up a little bit. I tighten things up a lot of bit. Yeah. You mentioned the yeah. Grateful Dead. I mean, it's pretty obvious that uh, yourself as a guitar player uh, were influenced by Jerry Garcia was that like a conscious decision to try and you mentioned that you maybe had that in mind when you started the band? Well, first of all, I got to say, I don't think that I am actually consciously uh, influenced by Jerry Garcia, but I am influenced consciously by the Grateful Dead. Because, you know, I, I, I hear Grateful Dead cover bands and their guitar players sound like Jerry Garcia. And I never, ever sounded like Jerry Garcia. I never wanted to sound like Jerry Garcia. There are certain elements of Jerry Garcia's guitar playing that really annoy the hell out of me. But I really do love the Grateful Dead. And so I would say that, yes, my guitar playing is heavily influenced by the Grateful Dead more than by Jerry Garcia. And in many ways, even more by Bob Weir than Jerry Garcia. But I do love the Grateful Dead in many of its uh, uh, forms, though not in all of its forms. There's, there's huge periods of time in the middle 70s where their music slows down to like molasses pace where I simply cannot listen to it. But at their spaciest and at their best, I really dig it, still. Like maybe more the Pigpen so, yeah. era? Uh, well, yeah, I love the Pigpen era. But even in, later on, when they, when they started to pick up the pace a little bit and they became a little bit more pop, but still retained their space segment in the middle of their show, that was a lot of fun, too. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it sort of um, it went a little bit off for me when, uh, and then this is kind of crass, but, you know, when Jerry started to clean himself up and he stopped being as spacey, the music became less spacey, I became less interested. Okay, what about Greg Ginn? I hear some Greg Ginn in your guitar playing. Was he an influence? Did you take anything from him? Oh, well, you know, absolutely. You know, if only the, the ability to be feeling liberated, you know, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I don't think that I was definitely influenced by Greg Ginn in that way. Because, quite honestly, he and I have such disparate styles that I hear, and maybe you don't hear it, but I, I am actually like a guy who, who studied form and technique for many, 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 many years before ever hitching up with those guys. And Greg was more of an impulsive guitar player all the way up and down the line. His idea of a chord vocabulary, vocabulary was stuff that he thought that he was inventing along the way. Uh, whereas the stuff that I was playing was stuff that I had learned along the way. 
for example, um, I, I remember playing a major seventh chord and Ginn being really weirded out about it because it turned out that it was a chord that he had used in the song Damaged. Okay. And he thought that it was a chord that he had actually invented. <laughs> so that, you know, I mean, major seventh chords are not things that you invent. You know, it's something that you learn along the way. You learn how to incorporate them into composition. Or if you're Greg Ginn, you learn how to play them instinctively, incorporate them into your music and think you invented it. Yeah. You know, so I, I would say that, you know, there, the, what Greg did was he influenced me in terms of being liberated on stage, but not in terms of chord composition. My songs on the Dog album are all folk rock songs. Well, not all, but most of them are folk rock songs based in like Bob Dylan tradition. Yeah. The, the one standout might be slow dancing for fast people, which may sound to some unschooled as a black flag riff, but it is not. It is a fake King Crimson riff. Uh-huh. And then when you listen to stuff like Toto Para Me, which may sound like a fake black flag riff, it really is not. It's more like a flake black, uh, black Sabbath riff. So I don't hear any black flag in Tom Fricoli's dog, except, again, the ability for me to be what I needed to be as a guitar player without being fettered by pop sensibilities. What about Meat Puppets? Just seems to me that maybe they kind of gave uh, some of the SST bands like maybe permission to kind of let their freak flag fly a little bit. I would say that's certainly true for me vocally. Uh, I, it says that I would never have even tried to be a vocalist on any SST or anywhere else in the world if it hadn't been for Kurt. Chris and Derek first. They gave me the liberty to just be what I needed to in terms of my vocals. But in terms of like Henry, I don't, I don't hear that. Uh, you know, in terms of like Dee Boone, I don't hear that. In terms of Mike Watt, those guys were established, I think, right from the very start. I think maybe with later SST bands, all of the SST bands influenced the later SST bands. But you know, the core SST bands, the one that I were hanging out with, I don't really hear much of a meat puppets influence in those guys. Yeah. A lot of those guys, including myself, worshipped at their feet. We loved the Meat Puppets, and on days off, we'd drive hundreds of miles to catch their gigs. But I wouldn't say that we were like directly influenced by them, no. Yeah, I didn't mean so much musically as more as, and I did mean the later bands, in more in the sense that you could just get away with that kind of stuff in that scene. Well, I don't think so, because, you know, they didn't really get away with that stuff in that scene. When we did the My War Tour in, in, in Spring 84... They were pelted with almost as much shit as the Nick Heist were. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like they were they were loved out there by the Black Flag crowd in Spring '84. Right. They may have changed some serious minds of of a serious few who went on to influence many, many. But watching them doing poke salad Annie night after night after night after night did not really truly make them endeared and loved by many. You know, their real success, real success, didn't come until the '90s. Yeah, and then they were pop. Which is not a bad thing. They were a great pop band. You know, I love that stuff. But I mean, in, in terms of like the Spring 84 tour, the record was selling, they were getting written up, you know, they, they were getting the critical acclaim, but they were also getting loogied. They were also getting coins tossed at them. They were also getting lit cigarettes tossed at them. They were also getting booed and jeered. What about you? How much, how, how much booing did you endure? <laughs> All of it. <laughs> All of it? <laughs> every, every last bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> All of it and more. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you, the thing is, is that you had to detach yourself from your ego in order to be able to go out there and do that stuff to that crowd. I mean, it was like, if I was going to go out there expecting adulation, man, I would have been committing suicide and drinking razor blades all night long. I mean, you know, they weren't there to see me, man. They were there to see Black Flag, which also allowed me to be as free as I wanted to be because I knew no matter how good I was or how shitty I was, they weren't going to like me either way. And did that get under your skin or was that part of the fun? No, I wouldn't say it was part of the fun, but I would also say it was not something that really got under my skin because ultimately... And I will tell you this while I am laughing, but I will also tell you this with a straight face. <laughs> I got SST records out and you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> okay, how's that, you sons of bitches? I'm the one who was on tour and you were the ones paying to see me. So you know what the fuck? <laughs> Any of the tracks on your album that you would stretch out live? I when I hear Total Para oh, Me, I, I think that one was sure, for sure had to be a jammer. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, is that um, this, because of the nature of Black Flag and Greg's trip, 
and I'm not trying to knock it. I swear to God I am not because it's what made Black Flag Black Flag, and Black Flag had to be Black Flag. The thing is, is that when we went out the first time, uh, we had maybe one, perhaps two practice sessions. Neither of them were more than an hour, and that was true for the record as well. If there was an hour in the day to practice, Greg was doing it with flag. And so uh, Dog was always wedged in at the very last moment with almost no actual preparation. As a result, we had almost no material, especially when we first went out. That's why there was the acoustic thing, because I could vamp songs. I could make stuff up from my head right away, and David would just follow along on bongos. In terms of the electric set, we literally had only three songs rehearsed, I think. It was Camarillo, Suicide, and Patience. And then later came Toto Parami and a few others. But in order to fill 25 minutes, they had to stretch. So, yeah, they were just went on forever and ever and ever. And, you know, it was like just me, the guitar, my effects pedals, and just doing what I could. That's what it was. Did that equation shift eventually from less acoustic stuff in the set to, to more electric stuff? Let's see. There was the first leg of the Saccharin Trust our fall 84 tour and that would have been starting off where Davo and I would have opened with acoustic and then the four piece start meaning Bill Stevenson on rhythm would have come out about halfway through that we would have dumped the Bill Stevenson part and the acoustic part and just got three part dog all space all the time and so uh, the edited songs started to be added a little bit later Toto Pot of Me for example uh, started off during the acoustic set one night in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I just came up with a riff just out of the blue that became the riff for Toto Parami. Later on, about two months after that, we were in somewhere in Canada, and I have that tape as well, where all of a sudden I pull it out as part of a jam, just an opening jam, and it, for the first time ever, I sing the lyrics to Toto Parami to it, and it becomes Toto Parami. So, you know, these things start to come out organically. It's not like I had the time to sit, write songs, and teach them to the band because there was no time to teach them to the band. They were black flat. There was no band. You know, my band was a make-believe band. Their band was the band band. So fast forward to April of 85, I think it is, right. and you head into Mystic Studios. Where was that? That's like uh, in Hollywood, near where the old, I know this means nothing to you, but in the pit of Hollywood near the Cafe de Grand, where it used to be, the legend of Mystic Studios partly is, is that supposedly... Part of Led Zeppelin II was recorded there back in the day. And the uh, echo chamber that Mystic Studio used was, in fact, part of an abandoned or an old uh, bank vault. And the, it was the last acoustic echo chamber in Los Angeles, supposedly. That's the legend. Okay. Now, the studio had been really run down by the time we got in there, and it was owned by a fellow named Doug Moody who was putting out a series of punk rock records under the label Mystic Records and was trying to get in with, good with Ginn. He wanted uh, Ginn to start recording there, maybe, you know, resuscitate the studio somewhat. And so he offered Ginn some free studio time, which, which Ginn used for uh, Dog. I think he might have used it for SWAT and one or two other projects as well. Uh, we went in, and the board was just fried. It was like not had been updated since 1970. It was just dead shit everywhere, spilled drinks. It was just the worst. <laughs> Ginn had a heart attack on our behalf, and I'm glad he did. He called Rat Sound, who had already been doing our sound on the road, and he loaded up his van, showed up in Hollywood with a van filled with live gear. We schlepped it all up the stairs. He rebuilt the studio in about two hours using all of his live gear, and we recorded using his stuff. And he literally saved the day. And so it was engineered by... Who's the guy? Mike Boshears? Michael Boshears, who is a guy who had incredibly, or I should say has, incredibly stellar uh, credits to his name. If you ever, like, go on to, you know, uh, one of those discography sites or whatever, he, you know, this is a guy who worked with the band. Uh, when, when he was working with me, he had just finished recording a series of demos for Bob Dylan that became the Infidels album. Uh, he oh, was, wow. uh, he had recorded, yeah, he had recorded a bunch of this stuff and actually played me some of this stuff while we were waiting to, like, you know, rap man to set stuff up, or if we had a few minutes here and there. He was blowing my mind with these, these session tapes from stuff that he had been working on all these years. He was a really sweet guy, a really fabulous dude, and, I, I, you know, I, I was just so lucky to, to be able to work with him. Well, the record sounds great to my I ear. think so, too, you know, and, and I got to tell you, I, I really did not want 
Spot to produce the record. And, you know, I'm not saying anything about, bad about Spot, but my, my thing about Spot was that Spot's um, intent was to record the band as he heard them. And my intent was to record an album, not record my band as you would have heard it. Right. And I, I saw those as two substantially different things. And I wanted mine to be something a little bit more standalone. Plus, I knew if I asked Greg to produce it, it would actually in, you know, ensure a release. I mean, you know, I wasn't stupid here, Brent. <laughs> is asking, you know, Greg to be in the band, asking him to produce the record stuff. But understand is, is that he asked me if I would put out a record on SST even before I went out on the Nick Heist. Wow. That was based on demos, uh, home demos that I had made that I played him in the car one day while we were riding around buying pop. Okay, so, you know, it's like it wasn't dog that I was going to originally record for SST, but actually just like a series of my demos. And then it became Dog later. Okay, who's Tom Brennan? He's a guy who I knew from around 19, oh, I don't know, 1972 for a brief minute, and then reunited again in around 1976. And he's a guy who is really, really good at, uh, you know, doing like improvisational poetry and stuff. And my whole thing is improvisational music. So a lot of times for many, many years, we would just sit around where I would sit in the living room playing the guitar and he would just start spouting stuff off the top of his head. So I've got lots of hours and hours of stuff like from his 21st birthday where it was just him and me drinking beer and he's spouting stuff off the top of his head while I'm playing guitar and this and that and the other thing. And I just thought it would be cool to have him in on the record. And uh, I did. And so that's who that is. Yeah, his liner notes (laughs) on the back are uh, they're pretty wild. Yes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> They're pretty wild, is right. And the thing is, is that I don't know what the, what that's like, his piece on slow dancing and his liner notes, what that's like to an average person, because it's so filled with inside uh, references that only I get, or my girlfriend at the time might get, or his girlfriend at the time might get, or even more conversely, maybe only he in the world might get. But, you know, it's like just filled with stuff that just makes me laugh my ass off. That whole thing about Nick Fury's eye patch bouncing its right way around the JFK cabinet. I mean, that's just a hilarious image. <laughs> it makes me laugh. Chewy Modelo, of course, is yeah, pretty obvious is. who that Rondo is. From X. Yeah. Yeah, well, it wasn't always for a long time. For, for many, many years, uh, people did not know who that was. There was even one place on the web for a long time I had to correct that claimed that it was Des Kadena. Oh, and it's really? just none of those, yeah, it's just none of those people. It is, of course, obviously the one and only beautiful John Doe. He's, uh, I, I saw him recently in X. Uh, I was shocked to see uh, how marvelous he still is, how great he still sounds, how commanding a, a performer he is. Uh, you know, uh, I am so proud that he was on that record. I am the only guy ever to get a member of X on an SST record, you know, and, and nobody believed I could do it. And I begged John Doe for a long time. But the thing is, is what became weird is, is that for a very brief moment in time, John Doe became a fan of mine. And he started to come out to see my band. And so, you know, it, it was a very cool thing to get him on the record. I'm so glad I did. It's like, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, how many other guys can say they got John Doe on their record? You know, yeah. doing a Bob Dylan too. It's quite a coup, for you sure. Know, it, it, I, I think so, you know, and I'm, I still love it. I still love it. Yeah, it's great. The name of the band itself, is that a reference to... To weed it is but not necessarily specifically and only to it's actually uh my buddy rob holtzman who was the drummer for uh slovenly slovenly peter and later overpass also the first drummer in des's band vita that i joined for a few years he used it for that but also i used it for anything that i consider to be man's best friend so that uh you know yes that but also my guitar my band uh, my car, if it was helping me get out of a ditch, uh, you know, a, a, a plate of food if I was hungry. It was, it was just whatever man's best friend was in the moment. So, dogs, so Robbie dogs originally, <laughs> yeah, dog, right, exactly. You know, there's a little rat on the back. Is that a Dave Rat thing? That's for that's that's exactly right. I I used the little logo back there. I cut it out of his business card. And uh, it became a pretty well-known logo around town for a while, but I, I'm always proud to say I was the first guy to use the rat logo on the back of a record. Mine doesn't come with a lyric sheet, Tom. Can you explain that? Like, I know some did. Do you? Can you explain uh, how that came to pass? 
Well, I'm not sure how many actually went out with the lyric sheet. I can tell you that the first pressing, I actually did sign and number the first 2,000 lyric sheets. Okay. And then my understanding is is that, that a later press, pressing did, did in fact include lyric sheets, but they were unnumbered and unsigned. So the first 2,000 minus a few which are reserved for friends are in fact signed and numbered by me. Cool. How about the cover art? D Boone did did the cover. That, oh yeah, D Boone. Yeah, the deep, the deal deal with there was that uh, I had asked D Boone, uh, who really was responsible for me to even getting involved with the Black Flag crowd. I mean, the guy was like like my my ticket in, and I didn't know it. I asked him to come in on the record session, and the day that he was going to come in, it turned out that they had to do a MTV. I think it was an MTV cutting edge taping or something. There was no way he could make it. So his apology to me was to come over to the uh, uh, rehearsal studio one afternoon and whip out a album cover art for me, which he actually did in like under four minutes. He just pulled out a Sharpie pen. He drew it all out on a piece of paper after laying it out with the logo on top. And he split to make his cutting edge session or whatever it was he was doing that day. And I turned it over SST. And unfortunately, I didn't know how things worked in those days. And I didn't save the original for myself. So I no longer have the original drawing. I don't know if it's destroyed. I don't know if somebody has it. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a precious thing to me is that D. Boone did that drawing for me. For sure, yeah. Did he do the logo as well? No, the logo I did for a flyer that was uh, used a couple of weeks before we went into the studio to record. Okay. And it took me forever because it's a hall hand stipple work. Uh, <laughs> it was something I did while I must have been loading one night or something. I don't know what, but... I, all I remember is my hands cramping up at the end of it because I did so much stipple work on it. Right. Well, it looks great. Good. What was uh, Tom Tricoli's dog magazine? What was that? Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, uh, put together uh, a couple of um, special lyric books is really what they were. It had like special pictures of me on the road and, and with guys on the road and a few pieces of memorabilia, probably a couple of set lists and that kind of stuff. It's something that I sent out to the people who sent me fan mail. You know, it was not something that was for sale or anything. It was just for the guys who sent me fan mail who, you know, and gals who might want a, a little bigger, you know, lyric sheet than the insert that was inside the record. And so uh, it had some funnies. It had some cartoons and drawings I did. It's, you know, the thing is I did it with Vita, too. I actually put together two magazines for Vita as well. It's, I like to be more than just a guy who plays guitar. This is that I, I like to do a lot of graphic art. I like to write a lot of poetry. I like to write a lot of prose. And so I put it out there, you know. The Vita album's great. Do you know if there's um, ever any chance of any of that kind of stuff getting like re reissued or anything? Well, you know, the thing is, is that I, I actually was recently talking to George and with Dez about um, doing like a a couple of very brief reunion gigs back here in L.A. And George and I were actually talking about financially chipping in together and producing some physical hard copies of the non-released, still unreleased Vita second production, which oh, was wow. a four-song, yeah, it's a four-song vinyl EP or like a 19-song CD. It's like a four-song CD with like 16 bonus tracks or something. I mean, something stupid. Right. But uh, it's available online for free if you want to hear it, stream it, or download it at a place called the Internet Archive. I don't have the link information handy, but if you go to the Internet Archive, uh, dot com or something and uh, type in in their audio section, Vita, Descadena, George Hurley, it'll take you to that page. It's got a few live concerts plus the whole second thing there called the Dewey Bushmule Sesh. Very cool. Yeah. Before we recorded tonight, I was looking at kind of the SST discography to see how far off we were from the second factionization. And it, on paper, yeah. it looks like we're way far off. In actuality, like they just put out so much stuff in 85 that it, I think it came out. It was like the first album that came out in 86. So it couldn't have been too far behind this album. Do you know when when this one came out, Tom Tricoli's Dog? Was it in the... I, 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 the Tom Tricoli's Dog would have come out late. It was supposed to come out like like before June when we started that leg of the tour, and I think that it finally came out like in July or August. Okay. Uh, it did come out late, but as you said, the second faction, and it's the factionalization. Right. Not factionization, but right. factionalization. That one came out, I think, in like very early 86, because that one was mailed to me, but that time I was pretty much on the outs with those guys. And I did not pick one up at the office. You've been kind of 
clear that you're you're not super wild about that album. Do you want to get into that at all, or? I'm not wild about it. Um, I'm not going to go into all the pol- political stuff, but I mean, basically, uh, what happened was uh, the original October faction was so much fun because we just were jamming. Uh, the first uh, night they went out there, I was not part of it, but it was a little lacking. They asked me to be part of it. Uh, we had nothing prepared. We had no songs planned. There were no lyrics. There were no charts. There was no nothing. Now, this is one of my beefs. You probably read about this elsewhere, is that there's a big thing, there's a big movement in music that's come up in the last 20 years called jam bands. Where these guys go out and play the same shit night after night after night after night after night, and they call it shit jamming. Even the Grateful Dead weren't doing jam bands anymore by the 80s, for crying out loud. We were a fucking jam band. We had nothing prepared, nothing whatsoever. I loved it. It made us feel great. So somehow or another, Gin and Dukowski translated that into a sense that we could do just about anything in an improvisatory manner and would come out as art. So what they did was they booked some studio time, and instead of the band going in and laying down tracks, first thing that happened was young Greg Cameron went in and laid down an hour's worth of bass, uh, pardon me, drum tracks with no reference whatsoever. Then Dukowski went in without ever hearing the stuff ever in his life, and lay down an hour's worth of bass tracks on top of those drum tracks. Okay. Then without ever hearing any of that stuff in his life, Gin went in and laid down an hour's worth of his guitar on top of those previously unheard bass and drum tracks. Are you following all of this now? <laughs> you, see, you see where I'm going? Okay. I'm, I'm with all you right, so, so far. Next, okay, so next, Baiza goes in. He's never heard these tracks before in his life. Lays down an hour's worth of guitar. Then I go in. Now, it's a mishmash. Right. There's no fucking music anywhere on it to me. I'm saying it now. I'm not going to go into the politics of it. I'm just giving you my honest feeling for what it is musically, which is that it is not. And so I am very unsatisfied with it. I don't think it's a great piece of work. I don't think it's a lousy piece of work. I think it's just plain nothing and symptomatic of a mindset that was prevalent at the time. You know, I, I, I wrote that at the end of the process, uh, in those days, it was still vinyl, CD was new. We, uh, and so they came to me talking about how we could cut it down to two 20-minute sides, put the whole thing out on a cassette for full 60 minutes. And my suggestion was to cut it down to maybe 10 minutes tops, five minutes per side on an EP. Right. And they got mad, you know, they got mad. So, you know, that's the way it goes. You know, what are we going to say? I still think it's no good. I still love the first October faction. It cracks me up. It makes me laugh. <laughs> I do three stooges on it. I'm doing three stooges routines on it. It makes me laugh. I love the first October faction. Well, it's definitely a, tr- a true jam album. Like when you say, it when, is. when you talk about jam bands now, you're right. It's mostly bands with structured songs that have a section in the middle that they they extend into a jam. <laughs> you guys were completely right. improvising, 100%. The exact opposite. The yep. exact opposite. Yep. <laughs> we were doing seriously stretched out jams with the occasional vocal interlude. And uh, in fact, on the record, of course, we didn't even have our, our regular drum. What about uh, a second Tom Tricoli's Dog album? Uh... <laughs> All right, well, let's see. Uh, at one point... I had plans for a second Tom Tricoli's Dog album, and I had a bunch of songs ready to go, and some really, really good ones that I'm still to this day proud of, some of which I have uh, wound up on the, I think, the second Vita, on really second Vita album. Uh, actually, no, no, one of them was on, on the first Vita album. It's the one that George Hurley wrote the words to called Pig's Eye. It was okay. supposed to be on the second Dog album. Anyway, um, I put these songs together, and then uh, D. Boone died, and I started to feel really weird, depressed, and out of it, and my leg was hurting, and I was having trouble with SST, and Greg did, and things weren't going my way, and I went out for a little while, and I, I went on the road for a short while uh, with the Meat Puppets. They invited me out to just hang out with them, not play with them, just hang out. And that was a trip in itself, and I went down to Tempe, and I talked to Kurt, and Kurt uh, agreed to actually produce a second dog album. And Chris agreed to play bass on it, and Boston agreed to drum on it. Oh, wow. And just for fun, we did a few jams down there. And while I was down there, I overdubbed a series of demos for the dog album, like six 
maybe five, six, maybe seven songs for the second dog album. And I left them with the guys down there so that they could hear them, learn them, and figure them out. So I went to SST to tell them what it was that I was planning on doing. And uh, Mugger at the time, who was running SST, or at least as part of SST, told me they weren't going to be too interested in it for whatever reasons they chose. Mostly, uh, he told me because SST wanted to concentrate more on pure bands rather than projects. And Mugger felt like this was more of a project than a band operation. And so it just sort of fell through. But I still believe in those songs and I still believe in those demos. And I still believe that a, a, a Kirk, Kirkwood produced um, dog album would have just been fucking great. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, yeah. a- anything else you want to add, Tom? No, dude. No, dude. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, really, <laughs> we really appreciate <laughs> no, <dude>. you being <laughs> on. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you guys were out there, and I appreciate the chance to just talk with you for a few minutes and, you know, just said a few things straight, you know, just say hi. Yeah. You know, I'm likely to go underground again for another 20 years now because I tend to do that from time to time. So, <laughs> hi, everybody, and uh, bye again. See you again in about uh, another 20 years. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Take care. All right, Brent. You take it easy, buddy. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks again, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Tom, for being such a great interview. And he uh, he was really helpful with info, not just for this, but for the October Faction episode. He sent me tons of stuff, so we really appreciate it. Yeah, and it's a pretty undocumented band in terms of details. Tom Tricoli's dog, you find a lot of references about it, but no actual meaningful information other than it was like one of Greg Ginn's side projects with a bunch of Black Flag roadies or blah, blah, blah. Like nothing really informative. So really appreciate Tom taking the time to help us out with that. Yeah. Really smart of him, he mentions in the interview that he asked Greg to play bass, knowing that that would kind of seal the deal as far as maybe getting an album released. And I think that's one of the main main reasons he asked Greg Ginn to produce it as well. I have a question for you. You listen to probably a lot more classic rock than I do, wouldn't you say? Yeah, for sure. So what would you call this album? I feel like when I listen to it, it, it strikes me as kind of a Grateful dead type of sounding record now and then, but you probably have a lot more references than I would in terms of the sounds on this record. Well, some of them do, uh, although Tom says his guitar playing wasn't influenced by Jerry Garcia, and it probably wasn't. Like I'm pretty sure he's. it sounds to me like he's playing through Greg Ginn's rig on this. It sounds at times very Ginn-esque, and I think... I think he's he's got Greg Ginn's guitar tone going, but I, I don't know that. Yeah, when he's shredding, maybe. Yeah. Like on the back cover of this, you know, he's not playing Greg's guitar. They're playing live. He's got his own guitar. It's like an Ibanez Les Paul copy by the looks of it. Yeah, but I'm just trying to place this record, like, in terms of a genre. And I have I'm having a hard time. Like, I want to say it's like Grateful Dead, but almost folk. Well, there's well. A, yeah, I mean, I think he says in the interview, he was doing, he was busking. Like, he would bring an acoustic guitar on tour and busk out in front of the venues. And half of this, I think, is stuff that he maybe busked. You know, like, there's a couple covers on here. And some of it is, like, you know, folky, like in the Dylan tradition. He mentions, I think in the interview, he mentions King Crimson, who they were definitely all fans of. I think it's Slow Dancing. He says, uh, "Is a it sounds like a fake Black Sabbath or a might say he might say a fake Black Flag riff. I can't remember what he says, but he eventually says it's actually a fake King Crimson riff. So uh-huh. you know they were definitely listening to seventies rock and you know some prog like King Crimson, lots of folk, Grateful Dead for sure. There was you know he says he wasn't influenced by Jerry Garcia. He was definitely into psychedelics, which." is a is a grateful dead thing the jamming you know they do jam a fair amount on this a lot of this stuff sounds like it was just jammed in the studio and he said he says point blank they rehearsed twice before they recorded this album i mean that's that's what kind of struck me too it's it it's kind of folk jam music and i mean i think you probably listen to more stuff like that than i do and in my only ref my only closest reference is like the grateful dead i'm just wondering if there's anything else i listen to the grateful dead 
a fair amount. I have all of their studio albums and a fair amount, like they have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of live albums. They recorded every show they ever played and over half of them, I would say, have been officially released. And they jam a lot. Jerry Garcia's guitar playing is way more, while well, he plays predominantly clean, he, do, he doesn't use distortion and his, his solos are very melodic. Tom's more chaotic, I would say. Yeah, that's fair. Total Para Me is like, you know, it's a pretty heavy riff. It's more like a Sabbath type riff. Yeah, but I mean, it has, uh, you know, a Bob Dylan cover. I'm pretty sure it's a Lightning Hopkins cover too. Yeah, do you want to talk about the tracks? Because I've got notes on each of them that might kind of shed some light on the question you asked. Well, let's do it. History Lesson, Part 2. So, Side 1 starts with a track called Suicide that's written solely by Tom Tricoli. He says this one dates back to the mid-70s. He originally wrote it while he was institutionalized in Australia. He first made a recording of it as a home demo in 1976. I wrote that it's very SST sounding, like it sounds like an SST band. It's Neil Young-esque a little bit to me, and it kind of goes into like almost a jazzy thing towards the end. Neil Young, I would say, is another comparison you could make at, at times. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there are so many things that I think I hear in this record, a lot of bands and lots of references that I'm not really into, but I still like this record. Like, I've yeah. always kind of liked it. It's I've pulled it out like once in a while over the years, and I hear something new every time. Yeah, well, it's just a super interesting release. Uh, the second track, Orkney's Fare Thee Well, another Tom Tricoli song that he brought to the band, uh, he says this is the final track they recorded for the sessions, done around 4 a.m. They had recorded all the other vocals, and his voice is, is very tired in this one. <laughs> I, I yeah. wrote this is like a folky, busking type of song. Like, this might be one of the ones that he was busking out front. Yeah, my Th notes say acoustic folky. Yeah. Third song is Davo's Boogie. That's credited to Clausen. That's, that's Davo, Dave Clausen. Uh, Ginn and Tricoli. They did this as a warm-up in the studio. It's a, a simple Chuck Berry riff in A, and they decided after laying it down as a warm-up jam to write some lyrics. So the lyrics came afterwards. Fourth track, Katie and Elmo. Again, it's credited credit to all three of the, the players. It arose out of a jam done during rehearsals for the album. It's an excer excerpt of a nine-minute recording. So the original recording was nine minutes long. And it's named after Kurt Kirkwood's twins, Elmo and Katie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Elmo, I think, is in the Meat Puppets right now as a, as a second guitarist. Second guitar, yeah. yeah. Derek Bostrom's back that? in the Meat Puppets, too. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Saw some clips of that. Boy, it would be amazing if they did a tour. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure they will, and I, I'm hoping they do a new album, too. My notes, I wrote uh, Tom Ridley Shreds on this one. It's just another SST type of jam. Freeform. Yeah, I just wrote sure. three three minutes of improvised jamming is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, for sure. Fifth track, So Long, is another Tom Tricoli written song. It's got an interesting seg from Katie and Elmo. It, it was a mistake. The song was written in 79. Uh, he played it for the band during rehearsals for the LP once. He played it for them once. And when Tom and Mike Boshears were prepping the tapes for mastering you have to leave the the spaces in between the tracks apparently in the industry it's called uh land that dead space in between the tracks is called land and they forgot to put you know like they were probably splicing blank tape in onto the reels would be my guess is how they did that and they forgot to do it for these ones and uh they'd been up all night greg ginn had gone home to bed while they were prepping these tapes for mastering and they met him at k-disc and John Golden was going to master, I think he mastered a lot of the SST stuff, and he's a guy who's uh, mastered tons of gold records, and uh, he mastered Frank Zappa, he, he mastered Paul McCartney, and uh, he listened to it, they, they do a dry run through it before he, he masters it, just, you know, see what he picks out, and uh, they realize they f forgot to leave that space, and uh, thankfully it sounds good, like it sounds intentional, but they would have had to pay for a second mastering session if they wanted to take the tapes away and, and, and fix that. Uh, so uh, no kidding. 
that's that's how that happened so that's a little interesting tidbit i wrote this one sounds like something the meat puppets would have done yeah it i thought it kind of sounded like a bit of a hippie jam yeah i also wrote there it's like a loungy kind of a riff it's got like a phaser effect or something on it which is something the grateful dead used jerry garcia used a phaser quite a bit on later albums like shakedown street track six slow dancing words tom brennan music tom tricoli tom brennan was an old friend of tom tricoli's i think they played in a band together uh he wrote lyrics and uh tom wanted him on the album so we played him this track and uh he had some poetry written for it tom brennan did and apparently chuck had asked to be on the album or tom had asked him i'm not sure which uh, so that's chuck dukowski doing background vocals on this one and here's an interesting fact kira had recorded a second bass part for this track but they uh it made the track too busy and they they had to wipe it oh that'd be cool to hear yeah this is another jam for sure like they jam yep. they jam this out and then tom brennan laid his his words over top of it side two starts with uh the bob dylan song girl from the north country tom was a big x fan and he knew john and uh he called him and asked him to be on the album and nobody uh apparently nobody at sst thought he was going to show up and he the doorbell rang at the studio and there was john doe they didn't have anything prepped for him to sing on so tom tricoli and tom brennan uh locked themselves in this small office space with john doe and ran through a bunch of covers to try and find a song that they both knew the words to this is obviously pre-internet they can't just look it up on youtube so and uh they both knew girl from the north country by by bob dylan so that's what they ended up recording it recording they did it in two takes he's credited on the album as chewy modello <laughs> yeah i see that I, I guess he didn't want to use john doe probably would have to pay royalties to slash records yeah maybe or by this by this time maybe x had moved up oh yeah right what so, were they on in the mid mid 80s mm, electra yeah yeah electra okay second track on side two is also a cover sam lightning hopkins play with your poodle tom says he knew this one was going to be on the album and he wanted to do it with des lightning hopkins had showed shown tom tricoli the riff backstage at the troubadour when he was 14 tom inserted the line about guthrie and cody who were the names of his the kids of his girlfriend at the time des cadena sings on this one and play some acoustic guitar and it was also apparently a tribute to des's dad who we've mentioned before des's dad ozzy had produced a, produced a session at some point with lightning hopkins and i believe this song was was recorded during those sessions and des and tom of course later played together in a band called vita third track camarillo another tom tricoli written song he wrote this in 1976 uh, originally as a slower rockabilly type tune sped it up by double to make it more of a punk rock song and it was done live with no overdubs and this one i wrote also sounds like something the meat puppets maybe would have done yeah i thought that too it's kind of like a, a boogie rock song almost yeah third song toto para me words by chuck dukowski music by tom tricoli and if you want to hear the story about words by chuck dukowski go back and listen to our october faction episode we we talk about that how the how the phrase toto para me originally came about and we had this song on blasting concept 2 sst 43 as well right so this one was supposed to close out the album this is this is the track tom wanted to have close out the album they did a lot of overdubbing on this one and it came out of the october faction jams obviously and uh there was enough over overdubbing that it took four of them with all eight hands to to get the mix of this one down this is the days before automated mixing boards oh yeah i've done that the manual punch-ins yep <laughs> for me this is the centerpiece of the album yeah for sure this was clearly the one i think that they had put the most work into it was designed i think to be kind of you know a well-produced track yeah no surprise that it made it onto blasting concept too yeah and the final track patience written by this dude andy kirkin or sorry Kricken. andy and the rattlesnakes yeah with additional lyrics by tom tricoli so greg like they were doing this song 
live, and Greg really liked it, although he had never heard the original, and uh, it kind of insisted that it be on the album. Tom didn't really want to do it. He wanted to close out the album with Toto Para Me, but Greg insisted, and so Tom didn't, he just knew the riff from like seeing uh, Andy and the Rattlesnakes live. When they did it live, he'd just been making up the lyrics. When they decided to put it on the album, he tried to track Andy down to find out the, the, the lyrics to the song. Couldn't. So they just recorded it with Tom's made-up lyrics. And he's not too happy with, with the lyrics that he, he made up. The song ends with a pretty long jam that they probably did live. Apparently, uh, Tom mentions in the interview the echo chamber at this studio. He's got some pretty uh, pretty cool story about Mystic Studios. Apparently, the, if I'm remembering it right, right, he says that the echo chamber was like an old bank vault or something like that. And they, they ran all the tracks through the echo chamber, and they had to set Greg's bass amp up downstairs. So while Greg was in the studio uh, for the recording, his amp was three flights away. I thought that was interesting. Do you want to talk about the artwork? Yeah, sure. Tom mentions the front cover in the interview is uh, a D. Boone drawing that he banged off in about five minutes. Yeah, he doesn't mention, though, whether all of it is D. Boone. I think, like, the the face is D. Boone, and then I think, you know, Tom Tricoli's dog, the words, were yeah. probably a- added afterwards, right? No, he does say in the interview that those were his. What? They took him off a poster. Okay. Yeah, and D. Boone's words on there are, man, that was some good coffee. Scratch that. Smoke, man. Yep. Back cover has some interesting liner notes by Tom Brennan, written at the time. It's got the little rat sound rat that I think we mentioned in the interview. It's got a kind of a rundown of who all played on it, engineered by Mike Boshears, the dates that it was recorded. Special thanks must go to my pals in Black Flag, X, Meat Puppets, Minutemen, Saccharin Trust, St. Vitus, October Faction, all my buds at SST, Eileen, Tom B, that's Tom Brennan, the kids, Susie Q, and everyone else who encouraged, fed, housed, and bothered me when it was most vital. Special thanks also go to the original Dog King himself, Albert Hoffman. You know who that is? I don't. He was born in 1906. He died in 2008. He was a Swiss scientist best known as the first person to synthesize, ingest, and learn the psychedelic effects of LSD. <laughs> no, uh, the, no surprise the, that he gets a, a special thanks on the album when you when you learn that, hey? Yeah, the original Dog King. Yeah. What about a picture? We talked about Tom is playing like a Ibanez Les Paul copy. Yep. Do you see you see Greg's shirt? Yeah. It's a wicked surviving you always always shirt. Oh, I want that shirt. Yeah. Tom has shoes on. That's interesting. I th- he he normally plays with with bare feet, I think. What do you think of Davo's drumming on this album? It's not bad. It's not really, you know, spectacular, but it's solid. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean I don't think that that's not necessarily what he was known for, his drumming. He holds it together pretty good. Yeah. Pictures taken at the Anti Club. Pretty famous club, I think, in L.A. Yeah. Mine doesn't have the insert. Is yours? Mine does not. Yeah. Mine has some dead wax, though. You want to hear that? You bet. Got to click on my dead wax lamp. Hold on. What happens to the inserts in records? Like, people buy records, you know, and then 20 years later, you buy it in a used shop, and it's 50-50 that the insert's in there. Like, what happens to the inserts? I don't know. Good question. People stick them up on their wall, maybe, or something? Yeah, I guess, hey. Side A, coming around. <laughs> Side B, into the circle. Pretty tame dead wax. Yeah. Coming around into the circle. Yeah. That's it. We can do the ballot result. Ballot result. I really like this album. You know, it's, uh, I don't think it gets enough credit as being a pretty good album on SST. And uh, I like the whole thing. There's some songs I really like. Suicide's a good song. Uh, I like most of the jams. Girl from the North Country is really nice. But uh, for me, it's total par of me. Yep, that's what I would have said too. It's the standout. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Well, Brant, meet me in back of the drugstore. I got the world inside my trench coat. Oh. Yeah, it's SST48, Saccharin Trust, 
We Became Snakes. So killer. Can't wait for that one. And hey, thanks Tom Tricoli for being on the podcast and for being so cool about sharing uh, stories and info. He was a really great guy. It was a real treat to get to chat with him. Go find a used copy of Tom Tricoli's dog. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.